0: next several podcasts feature Pastor Dave's sermon series on Joseph. Centering on Joseph and his brothers, we get it all. Drama, jealousy, hatred, accusation, imprisonment, and more. But it's actually a story of forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation. Stay with us for the next two months to watch it unfold. Today we are beginning a series on the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis, and um, don't you love Bible stories that are just filled with drama? How many of you like drama, by the way? Yeah. Uh, In this story, you have jealousy and hatred and incarceration, you have false accusations, isolation, loneliness, but you also have God's providence and His forgiveness and grace and reconciliation. Reconciliation. We're going to begin today in Genesis 37. It centers on Joseph and his brothers. You might call this sibling rivalry at the highest level. (laughs) First four verses of chapter 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, Jacob being Joseph's father and the father of these 12 men, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph... When 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Ever had a sibling go to your parent with a bad report? Now Israel, another name for Jacob, Loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, Joseph, and could not speak to him on friendly terms. How did you get along with your siblings when you were 17? Needless to say, this is what we would call an extremely dysfunctional family. Jacob, the father, set the tone, and um, you know what the name Jacob actually means deceiver or supplanter. He is a flawed individual. I mean, uh, who sees their 12 sons and decides not only to pick a favorite, but to let everybody else know he's my favorite? Parents, have you ever had a favorite? (laughs) Did you let the others know? He even makes a special gift for Joseph, this coat of many colors, as we know. Do you think he ever thought about how it's going to make the other 11 guys feel? Well, that's nothing compared to what Jacob did in other places. Case in point, his only daughter was raped. And his sons went and killed off the group of people that the rapists came from, and Jacob was mad. But he's not mad because his daughter got raped. He's not mad because his sons avenged that crime. He was mad about the damage this whole thing might do to his reputation with the neighbors. Jacob had 12 sons, one daughter with four different wives. There are more terrible things that I could talk about that happened in this family, but the point is this. This is one dysfunctional group of people. Surely God should change courses and switch to a more respectable, stable family through which to bring the Messiah, Jesus, right? But he didn't. That's right, this is the family tree that bore the Savior of the world a few centuries later. In fact, as you're going to see throughout this whole drama, that this is really all about Jesus, the Messiah, to come. The story foreshadows the life of Christ, and the story preserves the lineage that brought us Christ. So this is Joseph's family. This is his pedigree. Yet God chooses him, Joseph, from this family to do mighty, awesome things. He becomes God's man, strategically placed at just exactly the right time to carry out the sovereign will of God. He is nothing like Dad, he's a man of honesty, forgiveness, courage, and strong character. So before we get into the rest of the story, I want to make this point very clear. God mightily uses people who grew up in dysfunctional families. That's good news. Amen? Did you know that God is more powerful than your dysfunctional family? I went to a conference once, and the speaker was talking about families, and he says, you know, we're all from dysfunctional families to some degree. There's never been a perfect one. We all have stuff, right? But no matter where a person comes from, God is able to rescue and redeem and repair <laughs> the brokenness. I hear, I hear people say all the time that they're just damaged or broken or unlucky and they, they, they're, or they're just forgotten. With the implication that they're beyond God's reach. Because of maybe their choices or their past or a bad decision at some point. And but underlying that kind of attitude is this. They they're actually saying that I have no choice but to be dysfunctional myself. I have no choice but to be sad or an addict or unforgiving or rude. They blame their abuse and their neglect, their lack of a father, even God himself, to justify staying in the struggle. They have concluded there is no hope. And in a weird sort of way, even work hard to preserve that life story. So I'm going to say this. That is not true. Your predicament, your hopelessness is not a statement of who God is. I don't care how bad it's been, God is bigger. God is bigger than neglect, amen? He is bigger than rejection. He is bigger than abuse of all kinds. God is bigger than your dysfunctional father or your mean mother, God is bigger. Period. He can fill the love void in your life. And, folks, there's nothing like His love. I would even say He specializes in tough cases. (laughs) So, if you think you're too damaged, I'm going to say this in love you're wrong. He loves you. He wants you. It says in verse 2 that Joseph brought back to his father a bad report about his brothers. We don't get any more information than that. All we know is is he's ratting on his brothers. So Joseph knows. Do you think Joseph knows how they feel about him? Mm Mm-hmm. And he chooses to escalate the bad blood with his brothers by telling dad they're not doing what they're supposed to do, but it gets worse. And some could even say it gets worse at the hand of God, because Joseph is given a dream from God. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they they hated him even more. He said to him, I wish I knew what tone of voice he used when he says this. Please listen, brothers, to this dream which I have had. For behold, we, all of us, were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You can almost get the feeling from this story that Joseph doesn't care a whole lot if he's very well accepted or loved by his brothers. I mean, if it were me, I probably would have not told this dream. Maybe that's a little cowardly, I don't know, but I would have kind of, or soft-pedaled it, or talked around the edges of it a little bit, or something, but I would not have come in and said, hey, Lo, listen to me, guys. I got something to tell you. I'm going to reign over you. And you know, I think of families in our church, just, I mean, put it in a real-life situation. Can you imagine one of our youth going to their brothers and saying this kind of thing? You all are going to bow down to me someday. Not only that, Joseph has another dream, where not only his brothers, but his father and mother are bowing down to him, and he lets all of them know, of course he does. I mean, it would be easy, Joseph being 17, to think he's just kind of an arrogant teenager provoking his family, but that's not what really this is about, right? Right? Here's what's going on, I think. Joseph was unwilling to hide the truth in order to be accepted. Joseph was simply unwilling to hide the truth in order to be accepted. He could have been more tactful, perhaps, I don't know, but at the end of the day, he knew that these dreams were the direct communication from God, and there was a responsibility he had to transfer the truth that he had been given to those in his family. He probably knew that there was some personal cost involved. I think of God's people today. This may be one of our biggest problems. The church has been willing to hide the truth, avoid the truth, alter the truth in order to be seen as more acceptable to the prevailing culture of the day. And by being unwilling to speak truth, much of Christianity in America has become complicit with the growing darkness of the culture. So the question is, are we willing to seek truth no matter where it takes us and speak it even if it costs us? Do we truly believe that God's truth is always best for people? Okay, case in point. Did you know that denying food to an able-bodied person who refuses to work is good for them? How do I know that? Because God's truth says that second, live second, it. Second Thessalonians 3:10, I'm out of practice. Okay, here we go. We'll get it back. Did you know, okay, I am going to go here today. Is that okay with everybody? Did you know that denying gender transitioning to an eight-year-old because God has already chosen their gender is good for them. How do I know? Because God created them male and female and by the way that's the end of the gender list. Genesis 127. I read this week that some states are considering laws to make it child abuse for parents to not let their young children transition. How did we get here? I'll tell you how. Because telling God's truth has retreated from the culture, and the void has been filled. Proverbs 10:21 says this. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Who are the righteous that feed the culture with truth? Do we understand that boldly proclaiming truth in the complete context of grace is what feeds society its health? Do we understand that the truth, the church retreating from the truth, from the gospel truth, only creates a void that gets filled with what? Spiritually dead fools. Back to the story. Sometime later, Jacob tells Joseph, go check on your brothers who are working in the field. And when this happens, verse 18... When they, meaning the brothers, saw Joseph from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. (laughs) You can see the sarcasm in that, can't you? Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, the oldest, heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. That's the quote of Reuben. And then there's this aside probably in his thoughts. Reuben, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father later. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. <laughs> I mean, I guess all that scheming and hate and just makes a person hungry, right? But do you see the deception going on in the story? They they all want to kill him and tell them that uh, the tell father that uh, look what an animal did. And Reuben must have had a guilty conscience. After all, there's a backstory. Reuben had already betrayed his father by sleeping with one of his father's wives, the, bro- the mother of two of his brothers. <laughs> I know, this was one messed up family, right? <laughs> but Reuben has this deceptive plan. I'm going to come back to the pit later. I'm going to rescue Joseph. We're not going to shed blood. We're not going to have this guilt on our hands. But that's not what happens. For some, we don't get the reason why, but for some reason, Reuben exits the scene, and while he's gone, the other brothers sell Joseph to a group of Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt. Then Reuben comes back. We pick up the story in 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments, thinking he's dead. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? What am I going to tell dad? What's going to happen here? So they took Joseph's tunic. They must have told Reuben the story and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. We don't know what happened. We just found this. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. And the father can't contemplate the evil that his sons were capable of, so he automatically decided a wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. The deception had worked. They'd accomplished their plan. They had won when it came to Joseph, right? A few points from this scene in the life of Joseph. First, about the brothers. Here's the point. Jealousy rots the human soul. Amen. A jealous person can be carried away to commit all manner of evil James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Wow. These brothers were jealous of the father's affection for Joseph, which led them to filter everything through their hatred. Everything about Joseph was filtered through this jealousy, even to the point where they just wanted him dead. We have biblical examples of jealousy. You remember Saul? Saul? And David, the only thing Saul wanted was for David to be killed. He he hunted him down. He wanted him, he's just jealous of David's fame. He's so much younger than me, and look at all the people chasing after him. But David, he has his own fit of jealousy, doesn't he? He sees Bathsheba out there, and she's pretty fine, and so he has jealousy of the husband, so he puts the husband on the front line of the war to kill him so he can have her. Where jealousy exists, so does every evil thing. Now, aren't you glad we today don't have jealousy problems? You all are good, but look, you're, you're fine Christian people, right? You don't, You're not jealous, right? No, you don't look jealous to me. But it's subtle sometimes, isn't it? Okay. Ever been in a conversation and listening to a story thinking of how much better your story is going to be when the person finally shuts up? (laughs) It's kind of close to home, doesn't it? (laughs) Ever wonder why you are not paid as much as the next guy? Ever been to someone's nicer than your house wondering why God has blessed them more when it's obvious that you're a better Christian? (laughs) Ever been beat out for a promotion by an inferior candidate? Ever think life's just not fair? You're always on the short end of the stick. I mean, you just put yourself in Joseph's place. He's probably in some kind of chains or or, or bonds of some kind being transported by this group of Ishmaelites. And uh, what's running through his mind on his way to a distant land by not knowing what's going to happen to me? you ever had a situation where you're thinking, why is this happening to me? He must have been thinking, I'm going to be a slave in a foreign land at best. I'm going to be killed at worst. Where's God? Why is he letting this happen to me? One more point. Often... God's plan it includes suffering. I mean, we we live in an intense conflict in this world between God and Satan. righteousness and evil, heaven and hell and we must not forget that we live behind enemy lines waging a war, a spiritual battle for the souls of men. But we also must not forget this. We don't fight like they fight. Our weapons are not like theirs. We get that, right? Oh, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes I see Christians fighting them with their weapons. It doesn't work. And why would we put up with that? Why would we take their little scrawny weapons when we have these weapons? 2 Corinthians 10:4. For the weapons of our warf- warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. When man is cruel, our weapon is love. Amen. I hear more moans than anything there. We love in the face of cruelty. When wronged, we forgive. What a weapon. When persecuted, we rejoice and are exceedingly glad. For great is our reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before us. When we suffer, For his sake we worship because we're sharing in his suffering. Joseph didn't know all that was about to happen in his life. He didn't know that he was going to rise to power in the new land. He didn't know that one day he would be the provider for his brothers and his dad during a coming famine. He didn't know he would see them all again. He didn't know all God was up to, and neither do you and I. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer about this Point in Joseph's life. How eager his desire to send just one last message to his father. And with all these thoughts, there would mingle the wondering thought of the great God, where is he, whom he had learned to worship? What would he say to this? Surely he doesn't know this is happening because if he did, he wouldn't have let it. You ever thought that? Little did he think then, I love this. That hereafter he should look back on that day as one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences. Being sold to the Ishmaelites, one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences. Or that he should ever say this. He didn't know he was going to say this one day. Be not grieved to his brothers. Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. God God did send me here before you. In this closing sentence, it is very sweet as life passes by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and to trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and cruelty of man. When people ask me, what season of life was the most transformative in, in In your life, I think back to a time when I felt completely insignificant, forgotten by my Savior. I was out of ministry, working at a job I hated, wondering why Jesus had let this all happen. He and I had several wrestling matches during that time as he brought me under his wing. I resisted, yet he persisted. And one day he broke me, praise God, and I became his. His to the point where nothing else matters. I look back at the season of suffering and can trace the hand of God through it all. Will you turn to him today? Will you invite him to use the suffering for his good? perhaps free you from jealousy? Will you let him break you? I, I, I meet people all the time who are resistant. They have God right where they want him. He's kind of on the edges of my life where I, I I have this pattern with him where I have, he has most of me, but, you know, I know there's places where he, I still kind of rule the, the area I, I just I just want you to know this you can resist but he's going to keep coming he's relentless in his pursuit of your soul and you'll cause yourself a lot less harm if you just give up <laughs> you know what I'm saying Open your heart. You know He loves you. One, two, three, four. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.